Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Beat, the only podcast that brings together the journalists and reporters who cover the club on a regular basis. I'm Sam Dean from The Telegraph and today I'm joined by Mark Manbryant of PA Media and Kaya Kainak, the Arsenal writer for Football London. I don't know about you guys, but I'm still riding the emotional highs of Saturday night and I'm not even an Arsenal fan. So I imagine Kaya, for example, you really did find that quite enjoyable. Uh, it, it was a pretty exciting and gripping game, not least because the atmosphere was, was so vibrant from start to finish, really. What were your thoughts yeah. on, on the match against Fulham and the performance overall? Yeah, it was one of them where you're sort of you're, you're quite upset that you're sat in the press box watching it as a fan because you can't really celebrate any of the goals. But... That's all right. That's a that's a cross I'm winning to bear. Uh, but I think the, the game itself was was good. And even though Arsenal obviously went down um, in the second half, I think it was played at such a frenetic atmosphere from sort of the last, I guess, 20 minutes onwards. It felt like it was the final five minutes of injury time. It was very intense. Everything was sort of turned up to 11. And it was a really sort of, I was going to, I want to say stressful, but not in a bad way inside the Emirates in the sense that everyone was so emotionally invested. And I think they could see that in the first half and the early parts of the second half, Arsenal had actually been playing quite well. They had, you know, they, they were dominating possession. They were creating a few chances. They were starting to turn the screw. And then the Mitrovic goal obviously comes from a Gabriel error, which is just totally out of nowhere. And then suddenly it's, it reminded me of the Wolves game, actually, which is the only game Arsenal came from behind um, last season where another Gabriel error um, sort of put Arsenal behind early doors and they've been playing well and they spent the rest of the game just trying to come back and the rest of the game was played at such a frenetic pace and I think this is pretty similar so yeah it was, it was it was a good game it was probably the most exciting game of the season not Arsenal's best performance by a long shot and maybe we'll get into the, the reasons for why that was a little bit later but I think it was um, probably the, the most entertaining game we've seen from Arsenal this season and a really fun one to be at I think one of the reasons I found it so sort of invigorating to watch was because of the very obvious common sense of purpose between all the Arsenal players after that Fulham goal went in. It, as you said, they all got turned out to 11 and it, it was like they all just decided, right, collectively, we're going to run harder and press harder and push and, and just be super, super aggressive from from as soon as that goal went in. And, and I think, Mark, I don't know if you agree, but the, the changes that Arteta made pretty much almost instantly bringing on Eddie Nketiah um, I think had a big impact, not just on the tactics, but the kind of feel of the game. Do you agree? Yeah, it injected some more pace into that team, massively so, didn't it? I thought Gabriel Jesus struggled the most he struggled in an Arsenal shirt at the weekend. That's not to say he's suddenly finished or anything like that. I just think Fulham did quite a good job of keeping him quiet. But as soon as Nketi came on, there was the change of shape. It just it just proves that Arteta's got that in his arsenal. Oh, <laughs> if you, if you pardon the pun, he's got that in his arsenal now, hasn't he? Which is to to be able to tweak a, a game like that. When you've got Ben White playing right back and can just slot, slot him into a three, that works really well. Obviously, the same would be if Tommy Asu was playing. But I just think that was a really positive change. And obviously, once they'd got back in the game, he, he swapped it back and brought Tommy Asu on and put him at left back. But yeah, Ketia came on. He had a couple of chances, actually, and probably he's quite, you know, inwardly quite upset that he didn't manage to score one himself. But hmm. he changed that game massively. The worry I'd have if I was Eddie and Ketia now is... I suddenly become that player that only plays 20 minutes when you're needed. And if you remember in the Arsenal documentary, that was his big point, wasn't it? He hadn't never started three games in a row, was the thing he kept saying. And kind of, I don't want to keep being the man who gets thrown on for the last 20 minutes. But 
he signed a big deal. He's still there. He's got that number 14 shirt. But at the moment, you'd imagine until the Europa League starts, his job is, is coming off the bench to change a game or at least influence a game, isn't it? Kyle, what are your what are your thoughts on Eddie? I mean, I, I interviewed him in the summer. Um, and one thing I noticed about him and discussed with him was sort of the change in his physique from when he first came through, which is obviously a natural process, but also something he's worked very hard on. And it was it was kind of telling how strong and quick he looked. Um, he was sort of throwing Fulham players to the floor and, and going around them and outside them and almost through them at times. And it feels like he's becoming a different player in front of our eyes. And, and Mark makes a great point that he's going to need more minutes and more time. But with only him and Jesus as the central striking options, you'd expect him to get a, a few starts, certainly in the Cups, wouldn't you? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think what works in his favour is that he showed he can play with Jesus. And interestingly, you know, whenever... Gabriel Jesus has been interviewed almost without prompting every single time. He does bring up the fact that, oh, I really like playing with Eddie. I really enjoy playing with Nketiah. So that works really well for him. It works in Eddie Nketiah's favour, <clears throat> pardon me. And I think that means that he's probably going to get starts. I wouldn't be surprised if we see him start against Aston Villa on Wednesday, to be honest, just with the way um, the way the fixture list is being quite congested with obviously Manu coming up on Sunday. They want all their first team players for that. But I think... Coming off the bench is not a bad role to have at this stage in his career. Obviously, he'll want to be starting more regularly and maybe in the long run, that's what sort of lies in wait for him. But I think by showing that he's capable and willing to come on at any point and impact a game, it's not easy coming off the bench and having an immediate impact like Eddie and Kessier did the other day in terms of Tim Ream and Tosin Adarabaya are very big centre-backs. They're quite difficult to, to impose yourselves on. But like you say, Eddie and Kessier was pushing them around, roughing them up a bit, just putting himself about. And I think that caused them problems that they struggled with because if you have Nketiah in the middle of the box as a focal point and you have Jesus just buzzing around and Martinelli buzzing around and Saka buzzing around that's really difficult for defence to deal with and then obviously we've got Martin Odegaard and Granit Xhaka and creative players like that a little bit further back and I have to mention Elneny as a creative player as well because I know what podcast I'm on but um, yeah I, I think Eddie Nketiah is a he's he's gone from someone who you were sort of you were, you were dreading as I guess from the Arsenal supporters perspective but I think um they were sort of concerned, not dreading is a bit harsh, but concerned if he was having to start a game. Whereas now, I think most people are quite confident if Eddie comes in and starts a game. I think they'd be quite happy to see Eddie lead the line against Villa on, th- on Wednesday. And that's a, a real turnaround from last season, I think. A bit of a tangent there, but you did mention Xhaka and, and Odegaard. And one thing that I think I noticed when they went down, Xhaka was, you know, barking out orders. And it does seem like Arteta, either through design or through a little bit of, of luck, he's given Odegaard that armband and Odegaard's that kind of leader who's an inspirational leader, if you like, isn't he? Like, follow my lead kind of thing. But he's got Xhaka on that pitch as well, who's the shouter. And I think those two together, I know we, we've talked a lot about the armband and Xhaka's history with it, but it's almost like you've got two captains there, haven't you? You've got the the, the old school bollocker, if you like, in Xhaka, who's going to shout at you in the dressing room and, you know, demand more from you from the pitch and then that that newer type of captain of someone that that just leads away and I think that could prove pivotal especially when he does start rotating the team and, and we see the armband move around between him those two and of course Jesus as well One thing I noticed after Mitrovic's goal um, Fulham taking their time to get back into position as teams generally do when they score and Arsenal were all waiting around in their own positions on the pitch for the kickoff, um, and Od- it was Odegaard who turned around and went to Gabriel and had a quiet word with him, clearly offering support and basically, yeah, 
keep your chin up, etc. But that sort of thing, I don't think he necessarily would have been the guy to do that in his first few months at the club. Whereas I think that was a pretty good example of, of the impact of the captaincy on him, that he now feels his responsibility to do that and to, to be a leader, in, as you say, Mark, in a very different way to Granit Xhaka and, you know, captains of Arsenal's past, because Odegaard's never going to be the guy screaming and shouting at people. It's just not his personality. But that struck me as interesting that he went, he was the one who went to Gabriel. And after he scored his equaliser, um, he ran straight to Gabriel as part of a celebration as well. And I think afterwards he spoke about sort of picking up their brothers after a mistake. And that, that ties back in with the sort of sense of unity that Arteta keeps talking about. And we can certainly feel at the moment within the stands. Um, Kaya, you, you touched briefly on El Nenny there. Um, we also had Kieran Tierney to see again uh, from the start for the first time this season with Zinchenko and Party out. What did you make of those changes um, and the impact on the team? I was surprised with the way Kieran Tierney was asked to play in the sense he was asked to replicate uh, Zinchenko's role, which is not something that I think comes naturally to him. Uh, obviously, the drifting into the midfield, Zinchenko even coming over to the you know, right side of the pitch at times to be so involved in the build-up. That's not really Kieran Tierney's game. I don't think he's not um, the best partial in the world. He's not the most technically gifted player in the Arsenal team. I think he's at his best when he's getting to the byline and putting in crosses, as we all remember from that season when Arsenal had games where they were putting in about 40 crosses a game. And I think that was when Kieran Tierney really shone. Now, uh, you, you wonder if maybe the Arsenal team, in terms of tactically, is, is moving beyond him a little bit. But I, I, I thought Arsenal would tweak the way they'd play. I thought they'd have Xhaka just dropping a little bit deeper to allow Tierney the licence to get forward a bit more. But but Xhaka was as forward as if, if not further forward than he's been uh, in the previous matches. And yeah, it's part, part of me is a little bit, um, a little bit feeling sorry for Kieran Tierney because he's not done anything wrong. Just the team seems to have evolved a little bit away from him. And Zinchenko coming in is obviously totally out of his hands, but I think either Kieran Tierney needs to start to adapt or maybe Arsenal needs to kind of adapt the way they play around him to get the best out of him because I don't think he's a problem by any stretch of the imagination. There were no real attacking threats in Fulham down that left-hand side. I don't think, you know, Arteta will be worried about throwing him into the team. It's just that left-hand side was so focal to the Arsenal uh, attack in previous games. I know a lot of their attacks against Bournemouth came down the right, but in terms of building from the back, Zinchenko was such a key part of that. And now when you go from Zinchenko to Tierney, it's a bit of a bit of a step down or maybe just a, a different step I guess and I think that's going to be a, a, an interesting one for Arteta to, to deal with because they're, they're different players and he wants players who are able to provide him with different options he's, he said that several times in, in his squad but when they're so stark you do wonder whether that's a bit more of a, a problem for Arsenal than it seems yeah all, all things being equal I think I might have said this after a few longer tops on Saturday night but if if he wants to play that way and Zinchenko can't play because he's injured, for example, I, I could see almost Xhaka being a better option to do that role. We've seen him play at left-back before, and I know it didn't work, but that was because the style of what they wanted from their left-back. But I just think Xhaka would be quite suited to that. I know you'd then be losing what he offers in midfield, but if you were so keen for that left-back to have that role of coming inside, which we've seen from Zinchenko ever since he, he put on an Arsenal shirt, then I do think Xhaka would be a potential option. Obviously, that then means El Nene would play every week, so I'm all for it. But there's definitely, I think you're right. I think if he's going to play Tierney in these cup games and, and things like that, he's almost going to have to change his team to suit. But you imagine that's probably the same for a few other squad players that, that come in because Sam's mentioned it before, the way they like to play at the moment is pivotal on a player 
with the with the skill set of a Thomas Partey, which I think again was was so obvious on Saturday. You know, Onene came in, didn't do anything wrong, didn't you know, didn't really put a foot wrong. But you look at his passing map and things like that, it didn't didn't exactly influence the game. And and that is a position where I think, given his injury record as well, that that they'll be worried. thing with Xhaka playing in that role and remember he tried that against Brighton last season I think I completely agree with you Mark on the ball he is better suited to that tucked in inverted position than Tierney is but the issue with Xhaka is when he's playing as the left-sided left-sided defender opposition teams will target him when they have the ball and we saw that with Brighton over that first goal that Brighton scored the Emirates came from Arsenal losing the ball and the ball just getting pinged behind Arsenal's defence on that side and that's always going to be the danger, whereas obviously Tierney can shuttle out um, uh, when Arsenal lose it and, and play as a more traditional left-back. Kai, you've got thoughts, I can see. <laughs> Just, I've got to point out for the sake of Simon Collins' fancy team, we have to keep Granit Xhaka in midfield, otherwise he'll get very upset about that. But also, <laughs> I think an option we're maybe forgetting in the left-back conversation is Takeru Tomiyasu. He played there a little bit last season, didn't play much because he got injured. Um, sort of towards the end of the season uh, in that Newcastle game, but he he started playing there against Spurs. He played there against Leeds, and he actually did quite a good job. So I think if you want someone who can play that inverted role, he's very two-footed. He's a, not as good a passer as Zinchenko, but a decent passer, a bit more press resistant than than Kieran Tierney, and he's defensively very solid in a way that Granit Xhaka wouldn't be. So with Ben White doing so well on the right side, I think Tommy Asa on the left wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world if you want to try and replicate what Zinchenko does. But then how you manage sort of having Kieran Tierney fit and but not playing him even when Zinchenko is injured, that's a whole nother story. But I think if you're looking for options and alternatives, I think Tommy Asu is definitely one. I do wonder if that formation team we saw in this last half an hour, basically three five two, um, is actually going to be an option from the start at some points. Um maybe not immediately, but but going forward depending on absences, because that that does tick a few more boxes in terms of personnel. It doesn't, it doesn't require anyone to be out of position, apart from maybe Martinelli at left wing back, which is a bit more um, risky. But you could probably put Tinney in that role and then have somebody else um, uh, inside a bit more. But um, that's enough about the Fulham game because we could talk about hours about that. And we have another game to worry about, which is Aston Villa on Wednesday night. Um, Mark, Villa seem pretty rubbish uh, so far this season. Um what do you expect to happen here? And is this one of those where a team that's been so useless for a few weeks gets really angry and has to have some sort of reaction and, and can't be as bad as they have been so they instantly become harder opponents? Yeah, it's it's, it's as easy as this is to say, it would be one of two things, wouldn't it? They're, they're either absolutely on their knees, the manager's struggling, manager under pressure, and they go to the Emirates and get their bellies tickled and lose 3-0, or Arsenal, the unfortunate team, who get the, you know, the response to... We've seen it before, haven't we? Was it Everton last season? I think it was Everton yeah. one winning about 20 games in a run under Benitez, wasn't it? So you have to be wary. It is a cliche, but if they turn up, any Premier League team can beat anyone else. They've got players that can do that. Long gone are the days of that 3-0 at the Emirates where Grealish ran the show, I think. I, I think if, if Villa were to snatch anything, it's going to be a, a smash and grab, isn't it? Rather than a turning up and absolutely taking over. I think Arsenal will be confident they can win it. There is that the shadow of the trip to Old Trafford looming over it. So you do wonder if there'll be changes to the team. But again, it's still so early in the season. Do we need to, you know, these players are elite footballers. Do they need to be rested? So 
if he does make changes, I think they'll be minimal. It'll be interesting to see if Zinchenko's fit, obviously, because he that was touch and go. We saw him in the mix zone on Saturday and he seemed quite, you know, he's running well, we saw him on the touchline running up and down, didn't we? But in the mix zone, he seemed quite jovial about his chances. So yeah, I it, it's every game could be a potential hiccup. I don't see this one being that for Arsenal. I think, you know, it's quite comfortable 2 0, something like that. Kaya, when you look at the Villa team, um, maybe this is me being sort of pessimistic, I suppose, but players like Ollie Watkins and, and Leon Bailey, I mean, Bailey hasn't started every game this season, but you can imagine him starting this weekend, offer the kind of running power and speed in behind that theoretically could cause Arsenal problems, given their high line and their sort of desperation to push high up the pitch. Is, is that an area you have any concerns over? And, and if not, are there any areas you have concerns over? Um, yeah, I would say it's a concern. Um, the thing is with Villa, I, they have those weapons. I'm just not sure how they're going to use them. So they have players like Watkins and Bailey who are, who are good if you want to play sort of a deep block counter-attacking style. But then they have creators like uh, Buendia and Coutinho who are maybe if you're going to have a bit more of the ball, those are the kind of players you want in the team. And Danny Ings is going to work really hard, but can he play in a two with Ollie Watkins? And I think Steven Gerrard is maybe suffering from a few... Um, kid in a sweet shop type transfer windows before he came but since he's come in I don't really think he's done much to help that in terms of you look at Villa and they spent quite a lot of money and they, they've not really progressed any further forward and I'm still none the wiser as to what Steven Gerrard wants to do at Villa Park He's he's been backed and he's gone out and signed lots of good players um, but I just I don't really see what their end game is and uh, you know I'm sure we're by saying all of this, I'm preempting a Callum Chambers masterclass on his return to the Emirates. But I think it's just uh, I struggle to to be too afraid of Villa just because I know they have these in players who are capable of brilliant individual moments. But as an outfit, as an outlet, I'm not really sure what they're trying to do. And I think that does make them a little bit confused, and it makes them a little bit easier to to break down because as much as yeah, their players are individually very good and could cause Arsenal some problems on paper. I just don't really see what Gerard's trying to do to to maximise that potential. I think I'm right in saying that Felipe Coutinho has enjoyed himself at the Emirates a few times in the past. Maybe he'll uh, maybe he'll finally turn up for the first time this season, but the evidence suggests probably not. The other major event in midweek, of course, is the closure of the transfer window which I'm sure brings a lot of excitement and perhaps at this stage a little bit of fear or worry for some Arsenal fans who are beginning to get a bit concerned that they won't be getting the brand new midfielder and, and winger that they crave. Mark what are you expecting from the final few days of this window and do you think Arsenal will get anybody in? I'm expecting a lot of Arsenal fans on Twitter to be unhappy but I do think that <laughs> It's a weird one, isn't it? Because you praise a team for going out early and doing their business. And they it's exactly what they did. They went out and got Jesus, they got Zinchenko while they're still on tour. But then everyone seems to quickly forget that they're new signings because because <laughs> the season started and they've embedded so well. It's suddenly, what's the next new shiny thing? Do you know what I mean? That's that's what they want. While other clubs will be doing business, whether you agree with you know the likes of Anthony going for as much as he is to United and things like that, Arsenal, will be, Arsenal fans will be looking on going, why aren't we doing things? And, you know, I'm sure their irons in the fire. It doesn't look like the Neto deal is going to go through. I just, I just don't. I can't see there being any any new additions to that squad. I really can't. That they're, they're very methodical with their transfers these days. Arsenal, as Kai was saying, almost the opposite of Villa. It's not just let's just chuck money at a player that's got 
a good name or or anything like that. It needs to be someone who fits the values, fits the the style that Arteta wants to play. Those players are hard to find. I think he'd happily go with the squad he's got now. It's a bit thin on the ground, maybe, but you know, barring a few injuries, they could get through to to the World Cup. You'd imagine. Outgoings wise, as as you reported last last week, Sam and, and I stood up again today. It looks like Maitland Niles will go to one of either Southampton or Bournemouth, but that is not not in any way sorted yet. So there's time, the clock's ticking against that. Bellerin again, for some reason, they're deciding they want a fee for this. And I just think it's really hard when you've torn up the contract and paid off players with the standing of Meza Ozil and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. What, what, take away what they were doing to the club, whether they were bad eggs and all that. We know they were, to be fair, but they're on big deals. They were big name players, and Arsenal said, "You know, to hell with it. We're going to let you go for nothing and, and pay you for the privilege." So when it's someone like Hector Bellerin, and they're saying, "Actually, we'd like a transfer fee," then you know what the club's wanting. Then we're going to say, "Well, hold on. We know if we hold on long enough, Arsenal, you know, they'll, they'll panic and want to get rid of him, and they'll and they'll just tear up the contract." You know, Edu, Edu's basically the Terminator these days, isn't he? It's mad, really. They're just he's happily to just. To rip those contracts up, I not I get from the business perspective. I always have, but it is a rod for their own back now when it comes to wanting to shift players that they deem, you know, surplus to requirements. When you know, when clubs know you're happy to just rip up contracts and let them walk away for free. Yeah, you give you give one player that, well, you give seven players that, and the rest are going to want it too because it's such a good deal for them, and that is going to be a problem. I think uh, until almost this whole squads being cleared out in the you know over the next decade when it's finally been like totally refreshed and the whole new cycle is going to, it's going to be a lingering problem. Kaya Mark said there that he thinks Arteta would be quite happy with the squad he's got. Um, do you agree with that? Because some of the comments he's making us sort of suggesting he's quite eager to to strengthen, particularly in wide areas. Yeah, it was that firepower one off the Bournemouth game, isn't it? That's the one that sort of Stands out because Arteta is normally very uh, plays a very straight back when it comes to transfers. Doesn't really give anything away at all. Um, but with that, yeah, he was willing to say, you know, I think we need a bit more firepower, and that was after a three 0 win. So that's a sign that maybe he thinks he's a little bit short. And I think with Nicola Pepe going, he's probably got a point. Obviously, you know, they've got Fabio Vieira in through the door, Gabriel Jesus in through the door, and then there's already Saka and Ketia, Martinelli, Smith Rowe. So they have attacking options, but. With the Europa League, with Carabao Cup, with the intensity of the schedule, you do look at that front line, you see a couple of injuries coming in. You do wonder if maybe it's a little bit more light than we we, we think at this point. There's players like Marquinhos in the 23s and you know a few exciting youngsters who could come in and, and fill in if needs be. But um, I think, yeah, I think it's not sort of at a stage where it has been in previous windows for Arsenal, where they're going to deadline day desperately needing to do something. It's a stage of sort of cherry on the top kind of thing where, you know, if they can get someone in through the door, fantastic, because they, they do need a bit more depth. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But if they don't, I think they'll be fine to get through till January and then they can reassess then. So I, I think I'm I'm quite calm going into the uh, the transfer window deadline day. I think people at Arsenal seem to be relatively calm as well. And uh, I know that probably won't be the, the mood of the fan base on, on social media going into the final day. But um, yeah, I don't think they have too much to worry about. I also think I know I get I take your point about the, the depth of the squad and things like that. I think Arteta proved in January when they didn't go out and get a striker that he's he's almost happy to work with a small squad, isn't he? Like and it nearly worked, it nearly paid off in the last season, didn't it? But yeah, you're right, it's a full season, there's a World Cup, there's a Europa League campaign this year that they didn't have last year. But it, it like I said earlier, it is just 
this recruitment now has a purpose, doesn't it? I remember Gary Neville said a few years ago to me that they didn't know what they were doing. You know, look down the road, Gary, at your old place. They haven't got a clue, have they? But Arsenal now have this in place, and I don't think they'll branch away from those principles just to bring a, another body in before before the deadline closes. I'd be interested to get your guys' thoughts on this. And I, uh, while I don't think it's particularly what the club are thinking, I, I wonder, would you, if you had to pick one, would you prioritise a new winger or a new central midfield player? Because the more I think about it, the more I find myself subscribing to the, the Simon Collins view of life, which is that if you can get someone like Tielemans, um, and I know we've talked a lot about Tielemans before, um, and people at the club have routinely sort of played that down, saying that it's not as concrete or as advanced as, as people think. Um, but I think it's, I think it'd be fair to say that, given the, the nature of Tielemans' contract, the deal is doable for, for buying clubs, and maybe that could be someone else. It might be Liverpool, for example, now, I don't know. The deal is doable, and what, what I don't know is obviously, well, what none of us can really know is exactly how much money Arsenal can spend on this. Um, we know Tielemans will want a big wage, a very big wage, and that will be a big part of it. And, and FFP and all that stuff, there's a huge concern on that, but there's enough to be worried that they can't just go out and spend whatever they want. But I look at that squad and think, as discussed earlier, the one player in there who they haven't got a real natural replacement for, but now, now probably Saka, but as you mentioned, Vieira, Smith, Rowe, Marquinhos can do the job. The one really key player to that system who they can't replace is Thomas Partey. And I think we saw that a bit with this weekend and, and El Nenny's performance, which is fine, but just limited in comparison. I just look at that and think, if I was in control of this transfer operation, that would be the area I'd want to strengthen. Not necessarily with a world-class player or a particularly expensive one like Tielemans, but there must be other options of, the, of a sort of progressive number six who can come in and, and make a big difference if, if Partey's not there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm not wholly convinced Tielemans would be that great a backup for Thomas Partey, just because the when you watch him, the, I think the concerns Leicester fans seem to have, Leicester observers seem to have, is the, over his defensive capabilities. And I know, you know, that in Arteta's system, that position primarily is a position aimed at sort of starting attacks and building attacks from deep. But a defensive role is a big part of that. And I'm not sure Yuri Tielemans would be at his best at a number six. I think he'd be a bit better further forward. I'm someone who subscribes to the position of if you can get more firepower and more attacking options into the squad, then fantastic. It's the old, I'm, I'm, I'm raised on sort of Arsene Wenger's Arsenal and sort of they had ridiculous numbers of attacking players and they always had options off the bench. And last season, Arsenal's big issue, and Mikel Arteta actually mentioned this in his post-match press conference after Fulham, sort of why Arsenal were able to come back is they had alternatives. Last season, they didn't have any alternatives. This season, they do have a couple of alternatives. If you can get one more alternative in, who's a really quality player who can actually contribute to the squad and sort of make those Europa League group games even more safe, um, do well in the Carabao Cups and then provide a potential sort of uh, pushing uh, starting places for like Saka and Marcelli, a bit more competition for them so they don't start to get too comfortable. I think that's fantastic if you can get that kind of player. But I, I realise those kind of players aren't too easy to come by. So unless that right player is out there, then I don't really see a point in, in bringing them in. And as for the midfield... Um, people talk about sort of trying to bring in another midfielder for depth. I agree, the number six position probably could do with a bit more depth. But if you're bringing in a player of the quality of someone like a Tielemans, is he going to start? I don't think so. So I don't really see um, that's a difficult balancing act. And for the wages you mentioned and 
for the sort of the the various implications of that deal, I don't quite see it as essential as maybe some other positions. Yeah, I don't I don't know how you sell a deal to Tielemans where you say you're not going to start every week. I don't you know he'll just go somewhere else, won't he? Or see how he's final year at Leicester and go somewhere next year. I don't I can't see the Tielemans ones happening, to be honest. I just I just think I've we've spoken about it, Sam, before. I understand why they might not have done it or why they why they might leave it until the closing days, but if they really wanted him, I think they'd have gone and got him, knowing what they had to pay, knowing what his demands are. They could have gone and got him a week, two weeks ago, made sure he was over the line. You know, if, if they'd have done that, he'd have played Saturday, wouldn't he? So you, there are pros and cons to it, but I just I can't see the merits of, of leaving a deal like that until, until the last few days of the window. Well, apart from selling on his wages for a couple of months, which is probably quite a lot of money. <laughs> and sounds stupid, but that is the kind of thing that clubs look about sometimes. We'll be back, I believe, post-Villa uh, to talk about that one and to look ahead to big, big game on Sunday. But before we go, I must mention the Arsenal beat Fantasy Football League, Fantasy Premier League, of course. Uh, we have a new top five after this week's action. Uh, in fifth place, Simon Rayfield. Good stuff. Fourth place, King of the Juice, Damien Ondore. If I pronounce that surname wrong, I'm really sorry. Third place, oh, another difficult surname, Maurice Aguirre, Aguirre, Maurice, Morris. He, I'm really he, sorry with that. He'll know, he'll know. Use, he'll know, exactly. Use your spelling. Yeah. Uh, in second place, I can pronounce this one, Martin Kimmins. Then in first place, none other than Arsenal beat legend and regular contributor, Art de Roche of The Athletic. As, as the kids say, <laughs> Art knows ball. <laughs> famously famously art knows ball uh, so thank you very much for listening and we will be back very very soon in your eardrums <laughs>